This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. Looking at people who seem to be worse affected from COVID-19, obesity and more specifically metabolic syndrome is associated with an up to tenfold increase in mortality from the virus itself. Hello again and welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. I'm Peter Bowes. This is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. Well, there is some positive news emerging here in the United States and elsewhere that the spread of COVID-19 seems to be slowing down with fewer hospital admissions in several cities. And let's hope that trend continues. There'll also be a continuing debate over how we've dealt with this pandemic and whether some of us are more susceptible to the virus than others and what that tells us about the lifestyles we lead. We've heard a lot about people with underlying health conditions being more vulnerable and there's been some reporting that people who are overweight are more at risk from the virus. I'm joined by Dr. Asim Malhotra, who's a cardiologist in the UK. He was one of our early guests on this podcast, episode three. We talked about his film, The Big Fat Fix. He's since published his book, The Piopi Diet, a diet named after a village in southern Italy where the population enjoy a longer life expectancy than most other places. Asim, it's good to talk to you again. Really good to uh, talk to you too, Peter. And how are you doing through all of this? Um, me personally, uh, I think as well as, as, as I can be really, uh, everyone else, I think everyone's in the same boat, um, just trying to maintain some sanity. I think if that's the right word, um, trying to keep mental health good, trying to eat well and, and maintain some exercise. Um, at the same time, you know, doing my bit in terms of consulting patients remotely, uh, as well as, uh, doing some writing, doing some analyses to try and make sense of, um, you know, that what's actually happening with, with people with COVID-19 and what we can potentially do through different mechanisms to reduce the severity of the illness and reduce the death rates. Yeah, and I mentioned that we've spoken before on this podcast, maybe for people hearing you for the first time. Could you give me a little potted biography? You work for the NHS in the UK. Yeah, so I've been, I qualified as a doctor in 2001. So I've been working uh, as, a, as a doctor in the NHS for almost, almost two decades now. I trained as an interventional cardiologist, so everything you know I do is to do with heart disease, but then more specifically, it was uh, doing keyhole heart surgery and unblocking people's arteries if they had a heart attack, for example. But you know most of my expertise goes well beyond that as well into general cardiology and general medicine. Um, and also now, um, you know, a couple of years ago, I was given a, uh, an honorary professorship uh, in evidence-based medicine in a, uh, the Bahiana School of Medicine and Public Health in Salvador, Brazil, uh, just to reflect, you know, a lot of my work that I've been doing over the years in terms of academic publications um, in relation to everything around heart disease, but also my personal interest, which is population health and how we can reduce the burden of chronic disease and get people essentially healthier Peter. Now, you uh, published an article recently in European Scientist, and the headline is COVID-19 and the elephant in the room. What's the elephant? The elephant is that um, with this, uh, I think first and foremost, people need to understand that, you know, COVID-19 obviously is a new virus. 
There's been some comparisons made with the flu. Certainly, um, you know, the data up to date uh, so far suggests that it is several fold more lethal than the flu. The average, more, you know, the mortality rate, the infection mortality rate, if you like, people get infected with the flu is about 0.1% or one in a thousand. Um, different data suggests that with COVID-19, that is anything between, you know, 0.5 and maybe 0.7%. So five to seven times more uh, lethal. That's what the data suggests at the moment. It may change as we, as we move forward. Um, so I think that that is obviously a, a major concern. And, and obviously it's a new virus, so it's also much more contagious at the moment. So let's. St- I think we start from that perspective. Um, and then the elephant in the room, Peter, is that uh, looking at people who seem to be worse affected from COVID-19, obesity and more specifically metabolic syndrome, which I will elaborate on, uh, is associated with an up to tenfold increase in mortality from the virus itself. And that's uh, data coming in from all around the world, from China, from Italy, uh, from the um, United States, from the UK, you know, two of the countries worst affected so far in terms of death rates from this virus, tragically. And, um, uh, And just to expand on that, so essentially, metabolic syndrome, Peter, is any three of five uh, different sort of risk factors that we use for heart disease. So uh, blood pressure, waist circumference, uh, specific abnormal cholesterol profile, and uh, the presence of prediabetes or type 2 diabetes. So for any three of these five, which I will take you talk you through, then you have metabolic syndrome, and that's associated with the worst risk. But ideally, you want to have optimal metabolic health by having none of these risk factors. And what I discovered in my research more recently, which I also mentioned a European scientist, is looking at data in the United States specifically, and, and we can draw some similarities um, with that data on metabolic health with the UK, because our you know, tragically, our um, our population, you know, is is does suffer from um, you know uh, overweight and obesity, which affects more than sixty percent of adults here in the UK, and it's a bit higher in the United States. Is that um, less than one in eight people, twelve point two percent to be exact, in the United States, adults are metabolically healthy, which is very concerning. Uh, and, you know, that I think highlights the fact that, that the big issues of chronic disease and obesity haven't been tackled properly in the population over the last almost two decades. Uh, Peter, it was 2004, the World Health Organization announced that obesity was a, you know, a global uh, crisis, you know, that needs to be tackled. And we've not really done anything. Any country has not really tackled it effectively. So that's really the elephant in the room is that that COVID-19 appears to um, affect um, people with diet-related illness worse. Um, There's a couple of um, plausible biological explanations for that. One is excess body fat appears certainly with flu data um, to uh, cause, uh, you know, a dysregulated immune system. So the immune system doesn't function properly or it, um, it, it seems to overreact to um, these sorts of viruses and attack the lungs. And that, that causes something called the ARDS or the acute respiratory distress syndrome, which ends up killing people with COVID-19. And the other aspect is the fact that people with diet-related disease tend to have a mild chronic inflammatory process going on in the body. Basically, the, the body, because of um, poor diet, essentially, is, is, is being attacked by, by, um, by these external stresses 
at a mild level over a number of years, and they can also lead to all these conditions. So I think the, the interaction of the two seems to be particularly lethal for COVID. It is, as you say, it is a, a new virus, and we're still in the early, relatively early days of, of really understanding this virus and, and, the, and the spread of the disease and, and that arc that uh, we see so many times on, on our television sets in terms of the number of people who are hospitalised, the number of people who are recovering, and tragically the number of people who are dying. So I'm curious, since we are still in the relatively early days of understanding, how strong do you think that correlation between those risk factors that you've talked about and the actual disease is as we move forward? Well, I think in terms of catching the disease, it doesn't make any, it doesn't seem to have much impact. Although interestingly, um, looking at flu data from uh, published evidence from 2009 in, in California, people with obesity who had a BMI of over 30 more specifically seem to carry around the virus for longer. So there is that issue. It could be that people with obesity also seem to be more vulnerable to spreading it to others as well. And of course, you know, the problem we've got is the, you know, we know correlation doesn't mean causation, but the fact that a tenfold increased risk in mortality is significant, Peter. It's massive. Anything considered over, anything really over, you know, 1.5 or 2 is implies potential causation, but tenfold is very, very significant. Um, but irrespective, the fact that you've got, such a vulnerable population or unhealthy, that in itself, from a common sense perspective, suggests that they're not going to be as robust in dealing with this virus to start with. So I think it's quite clear. The other thing to add in, if you look at Italy, where we got some of the first data after China as well, um, the people that they had an aging population, of course, over there. So the average age of death was was 81. Um, but on average, uh, those people who died had 2.7 comorbidities, other conditions such as blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, cancer, etc. Um, and less than 1%, in fact, 0.9% of the people who died actually um, didn't have any underlying health condition. So it doesn't mean you're you're completely, you know, immune to it if you if you if you if you don't have any other conditions but the the risk is significantly higher if you have uh, underlying metabolic disease. It's interesting because Italy, and maybe this is uh, misguiding for a lot of people, but Italy is often considered, and you're an an expert to some extent in terms of the diets and the lifestyles of people in Italy, it's often considered one of the the healthier countries. We hear, of course, all the time about a, a Mediterranean diet, but Italy and Spain, in fact, have been two of the worst affected countries. Yeah, Peter, that's a very very good point you make. Um, And I think this is a, a bit of a myth now around these countries. So when we, you know, when I looked at my, I did my research in Piopi, this village in southern Italy with very high longevity, um, which you mentioned, obviously, you know, we, we did a film on it and, and wrote a book about it. I was going back to the traditional Mediterranean diet. So the the interest in that is because was was trying to figure out that when there was a whole interest in how the dietary guidelines were changed around reducing cholesterol and saturated fat, the belief was, based on studies done in the 60s and 70s, it was because these countries were consuming less saturated fat. But what was, um, but what that, you know, and and then from that, we then, you know, have this ongoing perception, belief about the the Mediterranean diet being the healthiest diet. But that was based upon the traditional Mediterranean diet in 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 those countries irrespective of saturated fat, which now is a very you know, controversial issue, but certainly that myth has been debunked um, by myself and many other people. That wasn't the, the issue that, that, that people were, um, it was wrongly demonized. 
Um, and obviously that's another discussion altogether. But we talk about the traditional Mediterranean diet in those countries. Now that unfortunately has been replaced now, Peter. So a lot of um, more recent data in the last few years shows that the traditional Mediterranean diet in these countries, Italy, Spain, Greece, is now being replaced or has been significantly replaced by the Western diet of sugary drinks and fast food. To the extent where Italy... Um, many people may be shocked to hear this, has one of the highest child obesity rates in the whole of Europe. So if you go to Italy now, yeah, they, they will still be having some of their traditional culture in terms of their food, but they're now on top of it, adding in all the snack food and junk food too. So that diet has been um, hijacked, if you like, by the Western diet. So they're not eating, you know, of course, you're going to find regions of Italy where they are eating more traditionally, but you'll find also that they're still healthy. Like, for example, in Piopi, the average life expectancy there is still around 90. Um, and there's very little, if any, chronic disease over there, which is very different to certain parts of northern Italy. So it depends where you go. Um, so I think it's important to, to look into that into more, in more detail, because some people even on Twitter, when I was talking about the Mediterranean diet, they were saying, oh, but hold on, why is Italy just, you know, just, it's just a, a perception um, what, you know, it's you know, almost dogmatically saying, oh, but Italy and these countries, Spain are Mediterranean countries, you know, you're not talking sense about poor diets. Like, no, no, no. Here's the evidence. Those diets have been, you know, hijacked. They're not the same as they used to be. So here's a question. If people were, do you think, to adopt a, a much better diet and, and lifestyle, perhaps do more exercise as well, something more reflecting a Mediterranean diet, how quickly could they see results from that? And I'm thinking during amidst this current pandemic, is it possible for us to improve our immune systems in the very short term to potentially protect ourselves in the months ahead because there's a lot of talk about a possible second wave of this virus later on this year that could catch people who've escaped it first time around. Yeah, absolutely, Peter. So that's one thing I've been advocating for is that depends where you're starting off from, but because such a significant portion of the populations in, in both our countries, in the UK and the USA and other European countries, are suffering with, with obesity and diet-related illness, um, the metabolic syndrome specifically, which I'll focus on um, again, and, and we can just define it for people, you can reverse that within a few weeks. So, you know, the research I had looked into my own clinical practice, I see patients reversing even their type 2 diabetes within four weeks of just changing diet, specifically cutting out the ultra processed foods, and more specifically, also uh, taking out all the sugary and starchy products from their diet and eating a whole foods diet, which is abundant in, you know, lots of vegetables, um, some low sugar fruits, uh, nuts and seeds, oily fish, um, you know, unprocessed meat, for example, you know, dairy products, these sorts of things. Um, and if you do that and cut out the starchy products like bread, pies, uh, rice, pasta and potatoes, then um, very quickly people can improve their metabolic health. So this usually happens within weeks, Peter, absolutely. And I think that message needs to get across. So I think what, what might be useful for people listening is just to define what optimal, optimal metabolic health is from those five factors, because it's not something that's routinely discussed in medicine by doctors with their patients. It's not something that it's something we're made aware of in medical school, but certainly not something that's emphasized. And it is, you know, metabolic syndrome, the three of the five I'm going to talk about, um, actually is, uh, you know, responsible for two thirds of people having heart attacks now. So cholesterol isn't the major issue, it's metabolic syndrome. And uh, these five factors are uh, to have optimal metabolic health is to have a blood pressure of less than 120 millimeters systolic and less than 80 millimeters diastolic. A waist circumference if you're a man of uh, less than 102 centimeters and less than 88 centimeters if you're a woman. Uh, blood triglyceride levels 
which are um, greater, sorry, less than 1.7 millimoles per liter and uh, HDL, good cholesterol, greater than one millimole per liter and uh, uh, HbA1c of less than 5.7. In other words, not being pre-diabetic or type 2 diabetic. If you have all of those, then your optimal metabolic health, three abnormalities gives you metabolic syndrome. But as I said earlier, only one in eight Americans are metabolically healthy. And this even includes young folk uh, to some degree, because um, looking at that data in a bit more detail, if you're between 20 and 40, only one in four people are metabolically healthy. And one other thing to add in, uh, Peter, as well, as I've said this before many times, that you know, there's no such thing as a healthy weight, only a healthy person, because only one in three people with a normal body mass index are metabolically healthy too. So the excess body fat starts to have an effect on your body even before you go into the so-called old traditional criteria of being overweight or obese. So I think that's important. We're all vulnerable. And, and, and on that note, talking about this metabolic control, there was an article in Nature uh, a few weeks ago, which I referenced, which was written by a number of diabetes and endocrine specialists who made that link between metabolic disease, diabetes and COVID-19. And they said they recommended that all patients, all patients affected with COVID-19 in hospitals should have their metabolic control optimized. Now, they were suggesting potentially with drugs, so that's things like blood pressure, drugs, uh, cholesterol drugs potentially, although I don't think there's any benefit there, uh, but more importantly, controlling blood glucose levels. And of course, the best way uh, and a non-pharmacological approach, not using drugs to control blood glucose, is really cutting out the sugar and starchy foods. And we'll continue this conversation in just a moment. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG, and we are the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. And one other factor, and honestly, there shouldn't really be any debate anymore about smoking, but I think you mentioned in your article that Public Health England have said that now is the best time to quit smoking because people who do smoke are perhaps more likely to get severe illnesses after contracting the virus. Yeah, absolutely, Peter. They made that link. Um, so, yes, let's not ignore that. You know, we, we've done very well um, in the UK and in the US in the last three or four decades to reduce smoking prevalence with Policy changes, of course, that targeted the availability, affordability and the acceptability of cigarettes. Um, but we've got that down now to less than 20% of people smoking. In the 40s and 50s, the majority of adults were smokers, which is extraordinary, isn't it, when you think about it now? Now the major concern of our time is ultra-processed food, which is now occupies more than half of the British and American diets, which is extraordinary. So this is basically mass-packaged foods, um, uh, you know, that is, is is devoid of nutrients, devoid of fiber, um, usually high in sugar, starch, unhealthy oils, preservatives and additives. Now, that is more than half of our diet now, Peter, which is pretty shocking, isn't it? Um, and even 75% of foods in hospitals that are purchased are of these types of foods. So this is really the, the major issue that we need to talk about in terms of what can population? What can we do on a population level with government policies to target ultra-processed foods? But for individuals who are listening, 
they can dramatically improve their health by just cutting out these foods completely from their diet, going cold turkey for a month, eating whole foods, um, and they'll see big improvements in their health. One thing that interests me is that uh, it seems sometimes to take something really nasty like this virus to get people to actually focus on their overall health and also in life generally we're often told perhaps when we have a very bad cold recovering from flu or even we've been in hospital recovering for an operation and advised maybe by doctors at the time well you better not drink too much at the moment maybe cut out alcohol don't do this don't do that while you're in a recovering state the message seems to me that if only we applied some of those rules during normal times we'd be so much better off. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I think, you know, there's no time better than now, really, Peter, to get this message out to people. And then to also give it perspective before even COVID-19, poor diet now uh, globally is responsible for more disease and death than physical inactivity, smoking and alcohol combined. And and when it comes to deaths more specifically, you know, it's identified to be um, causative of 11 million deaths globally every year. Now, again, the good news is, uh, and of course, some of this science is not the most precise, but, you know, uh, and, uh, but it's going to be pretty close to this, that if people did change their diet and, you know, for example, increase their portions of whole fruit and vegetables, for example, increase nuts and seeds, omega-3s, etc., then you could probably half of those deaths within the space of one year, Peter, if everybody did it around the world. It's pretty extraordinary, is what, what can be achieved. So I think that we, we, we have to ref, you know, reflect the evidence and, and the science and, and the best of the evidence to people, but also influence the policymakers and tell them, because I'm sure a lot, a lot of them don't even know this, of what could be achieved in a short space of time. And therefore, we would overcome this potential cynicism or apathy um, you know, that exists or nihilism, if you like, that there's not really much we can do about it. We're too far gone. That isn't the case because we see how quickly with individuals people improve their health. And something that is a little bit worrying about the times that we're living through is that people are locked down, they're staying at home and actually eating more. And just anecdotally, I have, I've had a lot of people say to me, I'm actually putting on weight during all of this, which clearly can't be good in the long term. No, not at all. Um, and it's unfortunate. And I think, you know, it is, a lack of, it is down to lack of education. It's, la- it's also down to the fact that I think this was a really good opportunity for certainly the messaging to come out from the government to say, you know, it, it's time for us to change our diet. It, it, the time to change the diet is now. Um, not just to protect your health in the in the short term, but also, you know, protect the, the the future of the National Health Service. You know, it was very powerful and effective over here in the UK. Um, the message was stay at home, uh, protect the NHS and save lives. I would add to that, eat real food, protect the NHS and save lives. And just maybe to head off some of the criticism of, of what I've just said is from people who will say, well, actually, we're going through really difficult times at the moment, maybe argue that it's difficult to actually buy some of those foods. And people are very stressed at the moment. And, and long term and bigger picture, stress, of course, is one of the reasons why people often turn to food and turn to bad food. Yeah, no, sure. And, and I completely empathise and understand, uh, you know, I get that, Peter. I've been, you know, we're, we're all vulnerable to that. We tend to eat more of these kind of junk foods when we're feeling stressed. But I think if people were to understand that, one, the stress itself is not going to help them, you know, it's not going to be good for the immune system, and then they're adding in foods which are further going to, you know, reduce their immune resilience or, you know, potentially put them more, more at risk, 
um, they probably would be able to think differently about what they're putting in their mouth and hopefully act differently as a result. More generally, how do you think the the post-COVID-19 world is going to look? Because we're going, and often we hear this phrase now, we're going to a new normal, we're going to reimagine life, we're not going to go back to how things were. You know, it's it's a very, very difficult question to answer, Peter. I would hope that we're going to move forward in a positive way. I think a lot of things would be learned from it. Um, one ex- simple example is the fact that the pollution has suddenly dropped everywhere, you know, in some of these major cities and people feel so much better going out. And I think from that perspective, there may be a bigger movement in terms of us tackling climate change. I think the other thing that's probably exposed is the, the myth that um, eating red meat is is the biggest factor behind climate change. I know there's a lot of controversy out there. I mean, the data I've looked at independently, you know, it's about eating better meat um, and reducing the factory farming. But I think the biggest contributors really um, to this pollution issue and climate change is, is uh, you know, is, is big industry. So, um, you know, away from, from, from you know, uh, from food manufacturing. So I think we need to that's one thing that's an interesting observation I've made. But also, yes, in terms of, of food and diet, I think we have to do something about it because actually we can't afford to carry on living the unhealthy lifestyles we have uh, because, as you mentioned earlier, we don't know when the next pandemic, the next virus is on its way. It may be in the next 10 years and it may be far worse next time. Whereas alternatively, if we do get healthier and more resilient, we may not need a lockdown. We may not need to, you know, protect the NHS as such because it won't be overwhelmed because we've managed to, you know, improve the the healthcare system so that, um, you know, patients can get um, good quality care without the system being under stress. And do you think the better hygiene habits that we've all been forced to learn because of this could have payoffs as well? I'm thinking of the next flu season, influenza. Yeah. Do you think the fact that uh, we think about social distancing, we think about running and running immediately behind someone, people sneezing and, and then, of course, going to a, a more extreme wearing gloves if you go to the supermarket and face masks, which hopefully we're not going to continue to do forever. But we are aware of our own personal hygiene much more, which could have benefits. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, uh, Peter. And I would say from a personal point of view as a doctor, as someone who, you know, values personal hygiene, maybe because I'm a doctor or maybe it's just me, um, I would very much hope it would. I mean, the, 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 the stark reality is, from my own observations, and please correct me if, if your observations are any different, but it's apps, people are, you know, in many ways, it's pretty filthy how people actually live. You know, you go into a gent's toilet, how many people wash their hands with soap and water when they, when they use the toilet? How many? Now, I don't think this is, this is just men. Almost every one of my female friends ask them say that it's very similar in, in, in women's toilets as well. So, I mean, basic hygiene has been lacking. It's, 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 it's very clear. Basic hygiene has been lacking. Um, but yes, hopefully this will trigger people to actually get into a good habit of washing their hands. Um, you know, and also that, that, that makes me think about, you know, when you go to restaurants and people handling your food, you'd hope um, that they would be washing their hands before handling their food. But, you know, again, from people I know that have worked in restaurants or, you know, have temporarily done, you know, jobs there, they've said to me that it's very inconsistent. So let's hope that that also reduces even the sort of foodborne, foodborne illnesses as well from from affecting the population. I do agree with you. And, and there has been a tremendous amount of tragedy through all of this. And uh, sadly, that is going to continue. But let's hope something positive comes out of this outbreak as well. Absolutely, Peter. Let's hope so. Asim, it's always good to talk to you. Last time you and I met, we had a coffee in Los Angeles. Neither of us are are travelling at the moment, but hopefully we can repeat that at some point very soon. Absolutely, my friend. I look forward to it. I do do like LA. 
<laughs> and you should see the skyline in LA at the moment. Just going back to what you're saying about climate, it is yeah. beautiful. I've never seen it as clear wow. in Los Angeles right now, which uh, has to be. Yeah, that must be news. amazing because I know Los Angeles does have uh, is normally very congested with the traffic, and uh, I'm presuming the pollution levels are pretty high as well. So yeah, I'm sure there's a big difference being noticed over there. Definitely, Asim. Thank you very much, and take care. All the best, my friend. And I mentioned the earlier interview we did with Asim. If you'd like to listen, head to our website, llamapodcast.com. That's double L-A-M-A podcast.com. Search the index. It's episode three. Hopefully while you're there, there are more than 100 other interviews with longevity scientists, leaders in their field, and some quite amazing people who've simply mastered the art of aging well. They're all available on this podcasting platform and many others as well. Wherever you find us, please stay safe. And thanks for listening. FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Ruud. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibres that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. Flexbeam, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a Flexbeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.